Good to see all of you this morning. We're continuing in our series concerning rebooting discipleship. Pastor Keith introduced this. Jack, how long ago did your dad introduce this? What? You were sleeping. Oh. So this is typical. We're introduced to a series which is going to maybe have three parts to it. But what he's not telling you is that there are about six or seven subparts to every part. And so we keep going and going and going and going. So I thought this morning would be the last of the series. And I had asked him, is it? Just so, you know, I would say today's the last one. Next week we'll do something else. And he says, no, had a few more thoughts. But this morning we're continuing to talk about the issue that Pastor Ronald brought up last week and began to speak about. And that is the issue of God's purpose in our suffering. Now, if you remember, Ronald began the sermon and it had four points. Do you remember that? He called it a toolkit. So there were four tools that he wanted to talk about. But he only got through two. And so this is typical of how we do. But about three quarters of the way into his sermon, I just really felt the Lord say, you're going to finish it. And I'm thinking, why should I finish it? You gave it to Ronald, you know, you know. And so I prayed about this. And felt led to finish it with one point. So this morning we'll continue with what he began. And we're going to be referring to the passage that we have been using over a period of time. 1 Peter 5 verses 6 to 10. So let's read this together if you have your notes or you have your Bible with you. And the apostle was saying, therefore, because of all that he has said before, therefore, let me collect everything that I've said from the beginning of the letter. More specifically, that which is immediately therefore before it, but in general, the whole thing. And let me say something about this, about how to be dealing with our suffering. So he begins, therefore, <clears throat> humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, that's important to hear, but the next five words give us the reason for this. And typically what happens when we read the word, we forget our grammar lesson. So that are two words, or just maybe the word that, which means this is the reason for that which I have just said. The purpose for why the purpose why I'm telling you to humble yourselves is this. And so why does he tell us to humble ourselves? In order that or so that or that he, God, may exalt you 
may exalt you. And so what we see in just that short phrase is the entire purpose of God and our sufferings. And so he said, I will exalt you. He will exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, keep that word in mind, glory, in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So this morning, very simple point this morning, but it is, I believe, the most important point that the Holy Spirit wants us to get concerning not only our lives in general, but more specifically, the point of suffering, because this is where we really struggle. John, 13, uh, John 16, 33, do you have it in your notes? This is a promise from the Lord. What does he say, John 16, 33? In this world, what? You will what? Hmm? Have what? Tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have difficulties. You will suffer. But be of good courage because I have overcome the world. So there's a statement by the Son of God that says that suffering, tribulation, difficulties, problems, opposition, that things won't go right, that things are going to go wrong. This is a statement of what is going to happen in every one of our lives at some time or another and to some extent. Suffering. Now, when you read this, how do you feel about that? You're going to suffer. When the Lord tells you that, how do you feel? What's the first thought that you have when you're experiencing suffering? Any about anyone experienced suffering? You've had a thought? Hmm? Any answers? Say, move, move that thing down. Other people not to have to go through it. That's a thought, but probably not the first thought. What's probably the first thought that comes into your mind? Hmm? Why me? Do you see how you come into focus? I come into focus when we begin to experience suffering. All of a sudden, coming into focus is something about me. Have you ever asked this question, why me? Anyone ever asked that? Thank you, Gary. 
Have you ever asked the question, or at least thought it, am I suffering because I have done something wrong? Is God trying to get me? Have you ever thought, how long is this going to last? Have you ever thought, what's going to happen? You see, all of those thoughts have to do with me and I rather than the real question that should be coming to our minds. And that question should be about what is God doing? Because you see, God comes to our minds when we suffer. But it's this. God, have you forgotten about me? We're questioning God, but the wrong way. Now, I understand that. I am not one when I read John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. I am not one, Chris, who says, Lord, please give me some tribulation. Do you ask for that? Chris, do you ask for that? Well, I do. It's a scary prayer. <clears throat> the problem with that prayer is you're hoping God isn't listening. <laughs> but it, it sounds humble. Does God care? And so you see what happens naturally in us is that when we begin to experience suffering, we begin to focus on that which is about ourselves and focus on God in the wrong way. That's just the way it is naturally, but it's not the way it should be. Does God care? Where is God? You see, this is the question that Mary and Martha were asking Jesus. You remember in John chapter 11, Jesus and the disciples are out in the countryside, a couple of days journey from Bethany. And so Martha and Mary send word to Jesus through a servant to tell him, your friend, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Can you come? Now, this isn't just that Lazarus has a cold. <clears throat> this is a sickness which is going to kill him. He's on life support. You need to come. They were suffering. I think all of us have had experiences with loved ones who are dying. That's suffering. And of course, very often the one who's dying is suffering if there's any ability to know what's happening unless they're unconscious. So interestingly, in the first several verses there, the Bible says, now Jesus loved Lazarus. Great. Now, what would you expect to be the next words? Jesus, come heal Lazarus, your good friend. Now, Jesus loved Lazarus, therefore what? What would you expect? Say it again. 
Get up and go. That's what you would expect. Jesus loved Lazarus, therefore Jesus got up and went on to Bethany. Isn't that normal? Now, the question is, does Jesus love Lazarus? Yes or no? Yes. Does Jesus love us? Two or three people said yes. Does Jesus love you? Yes or no? Yes. But that's a secondary issue. There's a primary issue here. Jesus loves Lazarus, and he loves us. Because the Father's glory is to be manifested through his love. So, yes, Jesus loves Lazarus, but there's something that undergirds and controls and informs Jesus' love for Lazarus and also his love for us. There's something that undergirds it, controls it, that informs his love for us. So finally, after two days, Jesus and the disciples get up and they go on to Bethany. Now, by now, when he gets into Bethany and he goes to the gravesite, Lazarus is not only dead, but Matt, how many days is he dead? Hmm? Four. I just want to put up my hands because I don't know if you remember that. Four days. He's dead. Now, what, do you, what would you be thinking? Come on. What would you be thinking? Come on, come on. You are part of the crowd and Jesus who has done all kinds of miracles everywhere. And then you, you know, your good friend Martha and Mary, her brother, their brother has died. And Jesus gets there four days late. What would you be thinking? Come on. What? What happened to you? Where were you? Didn't you care? It's too late. It's too late. And so Jesus, Mary rather, asked Jesus, Master, had you been here, what? My brother would not have died. Do you find these comments and expressions and feelings in your own life when you're suffering? Anybody do that? This is how we are. And so what is Jesus' answer in John 11, verse 40? He says this, what? Didn't I tell you what? That if you believe, you will what? See the glory of God. You see, Jesus isn't apologizing for being late. Why? Valinda, he's not late. He's not late. He's not apologizing for it. Jesus has arrived on the scene at the precise time that the Holy Spirit has led him to get there. But what does he tell us in verse 40? This whole activity, this whole episode, this entire issue of suffering 
in your lives, Martha and Mary, in the life of Lazarus, in the life of all those who loved him, there's one thing that is happening here. The most essential thing. God is about his eternal primary purpose. And that is this, that the glory of God may be seen through, in the midst of, your suffering. So what does Jesus do? He goes to the front of the tomb. And what does he tell them? Roll the rock away. Can you imagine a pastor? And we're doing a funeral for your mother, your dad, your brother, your husband, your wife, your child. And the casket is here closed. And the pastor stands up ready to give the eulogy. And the first thing out of his mouth is, open the casket. Now, Carmen, what would you think? Uh-oh, open the casket. So he opens the casket. Does Jesus now have your attention? The rock has been rolled away. The casket has been opened. Does everybody, you're here at the funeral. Do, does, do I have your attention now at the funeral? We've opened the casket. And then the pre preacher says, get up. And then all of a sudden, the person uh, sits up. Now, after all of you have finished fainting away and you gather yourselves, but think. You see, when we read the Bible, we read it. Okay, no. Think how you would feel. Are you with me today on this? How would you feel? How many of you would feel astounded? Unbelievable. Amazing. I have never seen anything like this. I can't wait to get out of here to go tell. Are these some of the feelings and thoughts that would go through your mind? Jesus said in John eleven forty, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will what? See the glory of God. What did those people then, or what if it were happening today, have we seen? What would we be seeing, Victor? An amazing, specific, clear demonstration of the power and mercy of God. Wouldn't that be what we'd be seeing? Are you with me today? Are you here? We would be overwhelmed with what? Not that, man, that pastor, this guy has it. But we would be saying, what kind of a God does this pastor serve? We would see something about God in this that we haven't seen to that extent before. The entire event would point to God.
it would say something about God. Our enthusiasm, our excitement would not be about what the preacher did. It would be about what God did through this man. You see, God's ultimate purpose in all things is that his glory, his essential nature and character, the splendor of his person, his majesty, his worth, his greatness, his goodness, his mercy, his righteousness, his justice, his love, that all that we understand about God, that he has revealed to us in the word, all of that would be seen in our lives and is accentuated or brought to a clearer focus as we respond, did you, did I tell you, if you believe when we're suffering? That's what God is after. Remember Genesis, Joseph is the beloved son of Jacob. And he's already told the brothers, hey, I have a, had a dream from God. Hey, now these guys already don't like Joseph that much, <laughs> you know, because he's his daddy. That's his favorite. And what's going to happen? Your cows are going to bow down to mine. Say what? Then he gives them another dream. What is that? The sun and the moon and the stars. They're all going to bow down to me. Say, man, this guy has an ego going. So they are now finished with him as far as putting up with that kind of foolishness. So they conspire together and they throw him in a pit. And then some Ishmaelites come on by in a caravan and they sell him to the Ishmaelites and they take Joseph down to Egypt and sell him to Potiphar, one of the officials of Pharaoh. Now, for 17 years, 17 years, Joseph is in prison because Potiphar's wife accused him of attacking her. He was innocent. So for 17 years, he's suffering innocently in jail. That's an injustice. She lied. It wasn't his fault. 17 years, never knowing if he will ever get out of prison, never knowing every day, a day of suffering in prison, never knowing at the end of 17 years again. He doesn't have that revelation. And then he's let out, and you remember the rest of the story. He becomes second except the Pharaoh in the throne. And finally, the brothers, through a famine, are gathered before him through a period of various circumstances. And now these brothers are bowing down to Joseph, who is second in all the world.
in authority. And Joseph tells them, you know why I've been suffering all these years? I wasn't even sure. I didn't know. I mean, you know, it, I, because God has brought us to this point of saving you. And so in verse 20 of chapter 15, here's what he says. You meant it for evil, but God meant it in order. God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What is the good? The good is the same good as we read in Romans 8.28. You remember Romans 8.28? I'm not sure if it's in your notes or not. What is Romans 8.28? The first few words. For we know that God works all things for the what? The good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is the good? What is the good? The good is the manifestation, the declaration, the shining forth of his glory that in us, in everything we do or say, and especially accentuated when we are experiencing some level of suffering, that the world may look at us. They may listen to our responses to life. They may watch our activities. And when they see us, they are to be seeing what Jesus told Mary she would see if she believed. And what is that? Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will what? See the glory of God. This is the most important truth I think that we need to know. That everything about my life, everything that God has, is, and will do, my every activity, my every thought, word, and deed has but one essential, ultimate purpose. And that is in me and in you. The world may be astounded at our God as the people were in the raising of Lazarus. This is why God created the heavens and the earth. This is why God created humanity. This is why God spared Adam and Eve's life after they sinned. This is what God was doing throughout the entire Old Testament. This is why Jesus was born into the world. This is why Jesus lived all those 33 or so years. This is why Jesus was arrested. This is why Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. This is why Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. All of this 
is for one purpose. And you read that purpose, remember, in Philippians chapter 2. At the end of verse 8, we read that Jesus was obedient unto death. Even what? Death on the cross. The worst sufferings. And as a result of that, what does verse 9 say? Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things where? In the heavens, things on the earth, and things underneath the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. This is why, this is what God is doing. This is his ultimate purpose in all things. All the other activities are secondary or are means of God accomplishing his ultimate purpose. This is the glory that Stephen saw when he was experiencing persecution from the Pharisees in chapter 7 of Acts. And so when we get down to chapter, uh, verse 55, what does it say? Stephen gazed or looked intently where? Into heaven. And what did he say? I see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. He saw in this risen, exalted man the compilation, the completion, the fulfillment, the gathering together of everything that God had been doing since the very initiating of the creation, gathered into and fulfilled in this one man whom he saw standing in the glory of God. He saw the total perfect reason of God for all things. You remember the ministry of Jesus? What were the people seeing? What were they seeing? When they watched this man, this man, this human being, when they watched him minister, talk, teach, when they watched him relate to people, what were they seeing in him? They were seeing the glory of the Father. You remember in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Keith, you remember reading that? This woman is caught in bed with a guy. And the law said what? 
you shall be put to death by stoning. Levitical law said you're going to be stoned. And so these Pharisees brought her to Jesus, threw her down on the ground. And they wanted to know whether what Jesus was going to do about Was he going to let her get away with this? <laughs> and Jesus stooped down, rolled in the ground. And then he said to them, what? Let you without, and the emphasis is this particular sin, not just sin in general, <laughs> particular sin. You who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And all of them, or each of them, from the eldest on down, did what? Drop their stones and left. And then he says to her, woman, where are those who are accusing you? They had left. And he says, neither do I. Go and what? Sin no more. When people saw that, what did they see? They saw the glory of a God. In a woman who was actively sinning. Who deserved justice and death. But instead they saw the glory of a God who forgave because of his mercy. That's what they were seeing. You see, we see the glory of God. We experience the glory of God. You remember the story of Jesus and the disciples and they're standing at the lake and he says, let's go to the other side. So they got in the boat. Now we're talking about a bunch of fishermen and Jesus, you know, not all of them, but several of them were fishermen. The lake was their venue. So they start sailing across the lake. And what happens? All of a sudden, the winds pick up and the waves begin to churn. And before you know it, there is a violent storm such that these men were afraid they're going to drown. Now, where's Jesus? You see, in the midst of their suffering and fear, where is Jesus? He is with them, but he's asleep. So what do they call out? Wake up. Don't you know, don't you care what about us? I mean, it's interesting. They didn't say, Jesus, wake up because we don't want you to drown. I mean, did you notice that? <laughs> that wasn't their first thought. Their first thought was about themselves. Jesus can swim for himself. I can't swim. <laughs> Jesus is the son of God. He'll walk away, but I'm going to go down. Their concern was about themselves. Suffering focuses, it causes us to focus, if we're not careful, on ourselves and on our own condition and the difficulties. 
and turn to Jesus and say, wake up. Don't you care? We're dying here. What did this man do? We're talking about a man in whom the power of God resides. He stood up. Now, you get the picture. This isn't a quiet day where he just gets up, walks across the deck, stands up, and says something. He stands up. This is a struggle. The boat is going back and forth, being slashed up and down and all that. The waves, you know, you can imagine. You, you, this is not a big boat. It's some, it's some trouble. And he stands up and finally you'll get a hold of the mast. And it's going back and forth, being whipped back and forth by the winds and the waves. He is also experiencing the same difficulties, except he is experiencing from a total different perspective because he knows something. He knows someone. And what does he do? Holding on to the mast, what does he do? He calls in a voice and he says to the winds and the waves, peace, be still. And in a moment, everything stopped. And the Bible says the disciples were more afraid of him. <laughs> what do they say? What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the waves obey his will? What kind of a person are we talking about here? What did these disciples see? They saw the glory of God being manifested in power in a man over those things which would destroy his people. They saw the glory of God in Jesus. Not as a just general kind of philosophical kind of a whatever. They saw the specific activity, proof, revelation of God himself. And you go down the line and you look at all the things that Jesus did and in every one of them. People couldn't believe what they saw. They couldn't believe what they heard. Here was a man in whom they visibly saw, and they may not have understood it, visibly saw the glory of God. They knew that when they saw and heard and watched and walked with and whatever that man, they knew. God. They knew that. They knew this wasn't just a superman. But you see, they saw the glory of God in the ministry of Jesus to a certain extent. But then things really got difficult. The suffering was turned up to high heat. There are folks in this congregation that are suffering, experiencing deep, deep suffering. There are people like this. There are people sitting here today 
and you are in a very deep place of suffering. In the first service, I didn't ask them to stay. I suppose they would have. I don't know, but Peter and Debbie Basil, are you familiar with Peter and Debbie? Many of you are. And almost four years ago, in a couple of months, it would be fourth anniversary of the death of their son Blake by suicide. I'll never forget the message she left on my phone calling to come, remember? I'll never forget the anguish, the deep terror and overcoming grief of this mother who was crying and pleading and yelling in the phone, Blake has killed himself. Will you come? I think that this would be one of the worst types of suffering that we can imagine. That's almost four years ago. She would tell you today, he would tell you today that these last four years have been the most arduous and difficult years of their life. They would tell you that. She said it this morning. But you see, that's not the end of the story. Because in the midst of these four years of horrible suffering, God has been at work revealing himself to them and through them in ways that they had not seen and affirming himself in incredible ways. If you don't know this, if you don't know them, you might want to talk to them. Don't have time the testimonies. I mean, the testimonies, Pastor Keith will attest to this, are off the chart. They are off the chart about what God has been doing, off the chart. And I asked her, I said, is it fair for me to say that these have been the most heavenly and the most hellish four years of your life? She said, yes. We're not denying the suffering. We're not diminishing the suffering. We're not, you know, putting it aside as if it's not significant. It is central to what God is doing. And so when you listen to this couple and when you speak with them, and there are others here, but I haven't asked for permission in some of your lives. You know what you're going to hear? Yes, you're going to hear lament about Blake. About 5% and about 90, 95%, you're going to begin to hear 
God did this, God did that, God showed me this, God is this, God. It's just God, 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 all of So when we look at Peter and Debbie Basil, we are seeing the glory of God accentuated, brought into critical focus in a way that we will not see in our lives in a general way. So when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we know that he suffered while he was here. And we see the glory of God in him to a certain extent until it begins to be accentuated. And then he goes to Gethsemane. Do you remember that? And in Gethsemane, the anguish, the terror, the horror of the cross looms in front of him. And all of a sudden, the crushing weight of suffering comes upon him in a way that he has not experienced before. And the horror here is not just the horror of dying on a cross. The horror here is the horror of having to endure the wrath of God, the punishment of God uh, for our sin that we deserve, but that he paid for in our place. And it was so difficult and so crushing for him that remember in Luke, we hear that Jesus began to pray with such earnestness that he fell. He kept falling to the ground, getting up and falling to the ground and getting falling to the ground. And that great drops of blood were coming down his cheeks. This is a man in the greatest anguish of any man who ever lived. And you remember his prayer, Father, not my will, but what was the rest of the story? Your will be done. What are we seeing here? We're seeing a display of the power of God. We're seeing the worth the value of God in this man that he is saying, I will go to the cross for you and because of you. We're seeing the glory of God. We're seeing the person of God accentuated in a man to the highest place in this worst suffering. And so the soldiers come in and they bind his hands with cords, with ropes. They tie the hands of a man who has raised people from the dead. <laughs> they tie the hands of a man who has walked on water and stopped storms. <laughs> Where is the glory of God in that? The glory of God is seen in Jesus submitting 
to the Father's will. Because he sees past the immediate suffering into the very heart of God himself. That's what we're seeing here. At the cross, the same thing. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Jesus could have said, I'm finished and it's finished and everything is over and I'm out of here. But we see a man under the authority of God, obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. You see, this is what God desires to be no, um, manifested in my life and in your life. On a regular and daily basis, but it will be accentuated when the suffering gets increased. There is a level or an aspect of God's glory seen in the regular ministry of Jesus. But it crescendos when we come to Gethsemane onto the cross at the death of Jesus. This is God's purpose for us. This is why he has saved us. I'll just share these last thoughts with you. There are several ways that God uses our sufferings for his glory. There are just several. We've seen what he's wanting to do and what he is doing. But what are some of the ways that he uses our suffering for his glory? He uses our sufferings to assure us that we are his children. That's interesting, isn't it? Why would he do that? Because God's ways are not our ways. But he communicates to us a father-son relationship that is accentuated in our sufferings. Listen to what the apostle says, Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are the children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. God uses our sufferings to discipline or train us. Any good father uses discipline to train his child. He's gone, huh, Jack? I don't see him. At any rate, this morning we had a moose over here, a guy built like a how, uh, what do you call it? a brick house? Huge. Big bodybuilder. Any bodybuilders in here? No one's admitting to it, I know. I'm humble, so I won't use myself. You'll be astounded at what my body looks like. I'm actually the poster boy at uh, Loyola University in the weight room. They have my picture there to encourage the other athletes. You don't believe me? Yeah. This is what you're going to look like if you don't start exercising. <laughs> now you can believe me. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, how long did it take you to get this big? And I don't remember, but it took him a long time. 
Does it hurt? Yeah, because when I work out one day, the next day, whew, wow. Some of you have exercised, you know that. When you overwork one day, the next day, your muscles are telling you, you're suffering. But why are you willing to do that? Because you see, you have a goal in mind. You have a particular type of body in mind. And so you're willing to go through the suffering and actually thank God and embrace the suffering because you know that this is evidence that I'm getting to my goal. It's evidence that God is at work in us, that God loves us. He uses our suffering to turn us from sin. Remember the example of Luke 15, the prodigal son goes away and he sins and sins and sins. And then all of a sudden he's in the pig poop. And once the suffering becomes accentuated in him, the Bible says in verse 17, he came to his senses. The Holy Spirit got a hold of him and used the sufferings to bring him to his senses. Have any of us experienced suffering because of sin and as a result of it, God delivered us out of it? I can raise my hand on that. And you know what? I look back and I can say, thank you, Father, for caring so much for me, but not primarily for me, but for your own glory in me. To use what you wanted to use in order to bring me to a place of coming back in obedience. It was worth it. It was worth it. So the son returns home. Now we see something of the glory of God in the son, but then the real glory of God is in the father. And the father saw him afar off. And when the father saw his son afar off, what did he do? He ran down to the son, this son who was filled with all this mess. And he says, the father kissed him. The father put a robe, his own robe on him. He gave them his signet ring of authority and he gave him his shoes and he brought him into the house. And they had a banquet. It's the suffering of this son that brought forth the revelation. This is the kind of father that you have that he had never seen before. So how do we respond? First Peter 4, 2. Beloved, don't be surprised. But then he says, rejoice. First Thessalonians 5:16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Why should we rejoice in suffering? Why should we pray? Why should we not be surprised? Why should we do these things? Because we now know that what God is doing in our sufferings is bringing forth a revelation of who He is, of His own glory of the splendor of his name, of his majestic presence, of his goodness, of his greatness. All of that is seen most clearly 
in the midst of our suffering. This is why God has saved you this morning. If you're having a problem with it, God saved you for this very one thing, that in us, he might be glorified. This is the purpose of God in our salvation. So the next time you're suffering, don't kick against God on it. Say, thank you. Thank you. But my biggest question now needs to be not why is this happening? When is it going to stop? But Father, I'm asking you that your name be glorified. I'm asking you to do in me what you've done in many others, what you were doing in the Basils, what you did in Jesus, that in me, your goodness, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, justice, love, etc. may be seen. Father, I don't want my period of suffering to be useless, to be in vain. I want you, if you would, let me say it this way, to get everything out of it that you want to get out of it because it's all about God. So here's the culmination of it. When will we see the fullness of what God is doing in us? When Jesus returns. When Jesus returns. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 4. And when Christ and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But now look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. And this is astounding. We eagerly await a Savior from here, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, listen to these words, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. We're not only getting a new body. We're getting a body that is like the body of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember what that body looks like? Have you read Revelation chapter 1? Remember John, the disciples, and one who was closer to Jesus probably than anywhere else, anyone else. He walked with Jesus for three years. He was one of the three inner circle men. And he's in the heavens. And he says, he sees this man. And he says, when I saw him, I fell to the ground as a dead man. Because the presence of God's glory was so clear and so impacting that John thought he was going to die. It was so overwhelming, so breathtaking. He fell. He didn't kneel. He fell to the ground as a dead man. We're going to have that kind of a body one day. So the question is, is it worth today what we're going through for that day? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to us? Is one level. But primarily, is it worth it to God? Who sent his son to die on the cross so that we could be glorified in the glory of his son? Is it worth it? 
this is God's purpose for us. And hopefully every time we experience suffering, which will happen about five minutes after you leave this morning, the devil will give you opportunity. So when we experience any level of suffering, let's make our first response, God be glorified in this. So our prayer is that may the glory of God be manifested in us every day and in every way because God is worth it. Amen. Thank you for being here.